Okay, everybody, good evening, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Tonight is an exciting night, because it is session number 100 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, our one, our centennial gathering. Uh, uh, and of course, I'm sure that you all would have predicted that we would be celebrating <laughs> session 100 while Frodo is still in bed at the beginning of many meetings. Uh, it's all good. So, uh, I, I've been uh, gone for a week uh, and back now. Uh, so first announcement I want to make is that I, I'm back and everything's back to normal. So, all the normal broadcaster back up and happening this week. Exploring Lord of the Rings tonight, of course. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, Mythgard Academy. Uh, so that's going to be happening. We're, it's going to be our mm, penultimate session on uh, Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, it's going to be the final session on the text this coming week. And then the week after that, we're going to be talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, in light of our discussion, our like 35-week discussion of Sir Thomas Mallory. So um, that'll, that's happening this Wednesday, our last text discussion of Mallory. And then uh, on Friday, I'll be doing my uh, Grifflet stream and another film film episode. Uh, so lots of stuff happening this week. Uh, all the all the back to back to all my usual uh, back to all my usual stuff. Um, so let's see what else was it that I was gonna? And oh yeah, and we have a, an announcement tonight, which is really cool. Uh, so we have a new thing that we're doing this year. Um, you might have heard rumors about this uh, in. Uh, um, in social media already, but in case you haven't. So this year we're doing a new thing at MythMoot. Uh, so MythMoot, of course, our big annual conference every year. It's uh, in Leesburg, Virginia, uh, right near the Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia. It is an awesome, awesome time. It's a four-day conference. Starts Thursday night, goes through Sunday. And uh, uh, it's, I look forward to this every year. It's like my highlight, the highlight of the year for me every year. Uh, we do lots of really fun stuff. I encourage you, if you can possibly make it down, there's still plenty of time uh, to enroll. Uh, if you want to register and come down and, and hang out with us, it is, uh, it is awesome. Um, and uh, we get a lot of Lotro people, a lot of people from Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's a, sort of the, the biggest, most central gathering of all of, uh, of our community together and it's uh, always a wonderful wonderful time however I also know that a lot of people can't make it um, you just it's too far away travel is impractical or whatever you just you just can't do it and so you end up missing out um, and people have been asking for a long time like is there a way that we can that we can do it so we finally went last year we were kind of experimenting. We streamed a few things as we we're kind of feeling out the tech and working out the streaming and and uh, the hardware and everything else and the location, trying to make sure we get everything together. Uh, so we were uh, sort of doing that last year as a kind of proof of concept, and we're ready to roll it out this year. So the idea is we're, 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 we have a new form of registration for uh, MythMoot this year, which we're calling MootCast. So let me uh, uh, introduce that to you if you haven't seen it here. Um, so 
for everybody who can't attend in person, what this is going to be is this is going to be a, a streaming, live streaming of every session in every room at Mythmoot. So everything that's going on in the main room, all the plenary sessions, all of the, the discussion panels in all of the rooms at once. You know when you go to conferences and like we're splitting up into three different concurrent sessions and you're looking at the schedule and you're like, man, how can I choose which which one to be in? I want to go to them all, right? Well, now you can, right? Because we're going to get live feeds from all of these. But also, not only can you, uh, you have to, of course, pick only one to be in live at the same time. I guess in theory, you could show up live in like two different, three different devices and all three of them at once. But I kind of, that'd be a little bit more multitasking than I personally am capable of. But anyway, I'm not going to, I'm not going to assume everyone's as limited as I am. Um, but the point is, in addition to live participation at any of the, the ones that you choose, uh, you also can, um, you also can uh, uh, get, you'll, you'll get access to full uh, archive videos of everything, right? Now, one thing that I would want to emphasize, if you're attending MythMoot, right, if you're able to come even just for a day, you get MythMootcast uh, built into that, right? So you will get access to the full recorded videos of the of all of the sessions, right? Um, so anyway, that's um, that's all going to be uh, that's all going to be part of the uh, part of the part of the package there. So this is a new thing for us. Uh, so if you uh, if you go to uh, the MythMoot page, this is uh, uh, signumuniversity.org. So let me make sure I get the thing right. Yeah, slash MythMoot slash MootCast. And um, you can see on this page, there's the, there's the whole like description of how MootCast works and the whole FAQ page down at the bottom. So I hope that you'll be able to find any... Uh, uh, any information that you need there uh, on Mootcast, uh, I'm uh, uh, really excited for this opportunity. I, this is something I've been really wanting to do for a long time. Uh, so, anyhow, it's going to be uh, it's going to be great. Yeah, there's going to be um, Mad Violinist. There's going to be a few cameras involved. We should only need three because we're only doing th we're never doing more than three concurrent sessions at a time. So uh, the majority of the stuff is going to be happening in one room. We're going to be using uh, GoToWebinar, which is the the classroom uh, uh, netmoot uh, uh, feature that we we use the, the, the program that we've been using at Signum for almost eight years now. Um, we're going to be broadcasting on on uh, our different go-to webinar channels. So how it will work, register for Mootcast, and uh, then, of course, we will have you listed as registered for Mootcast right before the conference begins. Not like instantly before the conference begins, but like a, a, a little while before the conference begins, we'll send you links. Okay, we'll send you links to the different rooms and, and, and we'll show you how it fits in with the schedule and everything else, right? So you know which channel to go to, which link to click on at what time, right, for, for which thing. So we'll, 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 we'll show you all that um, so that you can access any of the ones that you, that you want to. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, um, uh, exactly, exactly, yeah. It's, it's basically all you have to do is just sign up to register for, for MythMoot and there's a MootCast option now. It's, it's basically just another, another registration option. Um, uh, so anyway, that's, um, that's pretty simple, right? Uh, but pretty exciting. I'm, I've been, this is something I've been hoping for. Um, we've been working towards it now actively for, for a few years and I'm excited to see us roll this out this year. So, um, 
uh, really glad to make this available. So happy to share that with you guys. All right. And I think, uh, I think that's mostly what I wanted to cover. Oh, last thing, uh, uh, Mythgard Academy. I had mentioned that, um, the, uh, we're finishing the Maori class in the next two weeks. So that next week, May 8th will be the f- absolute final session. I, I, it's going to be number 35 or 36, uh, of the Maori class after almost a year, we're completely done with Maori after next week. Which means we are on to our next book immediately afterwards on Wednesday the 15th. And that is going to be Sauron Defeated, Volume 9 of the History of Middle-Earth. Back to the History of Middle-Earth as we continue our series through there. Sauron Defeated uh, has uh, uh, many treats in store. It's the end of the first. The first part is the end of the history of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so looking at the, the, the sort of the final stages of the manuscript process there, including, of course, the unpublished epilogue of the Lord of the Rings that Tolkien had originally included, um, which is always fun. And then, of course, the primary piece in the middle of the Sauron Defeated volume, uh, which is the... Um, uh, the primary piece, which is the well, blank, I, the Notion Club Papers, of course. Uh, uh, his return to the whole time travel Atlantis Numenor stuff. And then we get some more Numenor stuff at the end after that. Uh, the Notion Club Papers are really, really, really interesting. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's uh, to, if you've never read them before you absolutely should um as always of course you don't have to like we're in volume nine you can just jump in and join us at volume nine if you like it'll be okay there's you know eight more volumes of discussion of course that we've been doing over the last several years uh which you can go back and follow before that but um uh in any case you don't have to you can you can jump in and 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 go current with us here on volume nine, starting on the fifteenth of May. The schedule and the registration link will be up soon later this week. So uh, that's uh, that's that's coming. All right. Um, Hey, JJ's teasing me about exploring the death of Arthur. You know, we've we've gone pretty quickly. I mean, yes, it's been thirty-five classes, but you know, this is a we've done seven hundred pages of Middle English, right? You know, that's 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 pretty rapid coverage, really, especially by exploring the Lord of the Rings standards. Um, so, anyhow, all right. And by the way, one last little kind of teaser. Uh, I've been discussing uh, this week, uh, and this is something I think I've mentioned this before. Um, you guys probably, I know many of you know uh, the uh, the other wonderful Tolkien uh, podcast called The Prancing Pony uh, Podcast. I've been talking with the Prancing Pony guys who are really wonderful guys, and I've gotten to, we, we had them at Mythmoot last year. They're really awesome. Uh, and of course, they've been, they're doing a discussion uh, their way through uh, The Lord of the Rings at what seems to me a heady and entirely reckless pace. Um, but we, we were kind of joking about the fact that they came to Texmoot as well this year. And so I was, I was down, I saw them again at Texmoot and, um, uh, we were talking then about the fact that sometime during the course of this calendar year, our podcasts were going to cross, right? They were going to catch up of course, because they're going faster than we are. Um, and we figured that, that we'd probably catch up somewhere around the council of Elrond. So, um, 
we uh, we we've been talking about doing a joint episode. It's probably not going to be literally a joint episode because what we do is very different. But what we're thinking is that we're probably going to do a kind of exchange uh, where they'll come and they'll join me for uh, uh, for unexploring the Lord of the Rings session, and I will uh, join them for one of their sessions at around the same time there uh, as we're both in the Council of Elrond. So that's going to be uh uh that's going to be awesome so just that's kind of it's in the offing unlikely to happen until like later this year but uh uh it's going to be uh exactly a special crossover event uh it's going to be very cool so i'm really looking forward to that little collaboration and get their perspective uh on the council of elrond i think I think that's assuming we make it through many meetings by October, November, right? Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed. You never know. Um, but that'll probably happen. So anyway, to, just, to, just to let you know, that's another thing that's kind of uh, uh, in uh, in discussion. So, um Mad violinist, yeah, it's so funny when I'm talking to them. Uh, like they are, uh, uh, they're so organized. Holy cow! Like you know, Alan has everything planned out like way in advance and everything. And I'm just like, yeah, no, that's exactly how I roll too. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyhow, you know, trifle. That's exactly it. We do have a couple poems coming up in this chapter, so I am. That's why I'm. You know. Uh, I just said, let's wait and see where we are in the text before we get there. Um, anyhow, let us um, let us move on. Because, speaking of moving slowly through the text, a whole lot of really great discussion has been happening on the discussion board in the Questions for Narnian section of uh, our uh, Exploring the Lord of the Rings discussion board. And I wanted to, to come to a few of those. Now, I'm going to, with some regret, going to resist the temptation to go backwards over things, uh, but some, uh, uh, several things that uh, uh, came up, uh, you know, came up uh, over this, of course, you guys have had two weeks to post, so that always helps too. Um, uh, just in response to some of the things we've been talking about in the last couple sessions. So let me, um, let me get to some of those today. I don't know how much of the primary text we're going to get to cover today. Uh, maybe only a few sentences, but hey, that's how we roll. Um, so, Without further ado, uh, let me move ahead to... So this is a uh, from uh, Wyatt Eichholz, which I had kind of reserved until after we talked about the, had the, the discussion we had at the end. So I want to read this, and this will kind of help me uh, sort of refresh my own memory of our discussion from last time uh, and kind of get back into things, because I wanted to respond to this after we had talked about that passage. A fascinating aspect of The Lord of the Rings is its description of the Wraith world. The blurry vision and Wraith perception depicted in the films doesn't come close to the true nature of the Wraith world as we have noted. At first I was more likely to imagine it like the Upside Down from Stranger Things, a parallel corrupted universe that the ring bearer can phase into or out of at will. By the way, I think that's a really fascinating parallel, and although I hadn't I, I hadn't made that connection myself. I hadn't been thinking about it in terms of the upside down. I actually think um, once Wyatt brought that up, you know, the question of like the Wraith world and, the, and for if you haven't seen uh, Netflix Stranger Things series, you won't know what I'm talking about. But I know most of you have probably. Um, what I what I was realizing when Wyatt brought that up, I had never thought about 
the Upside Down when I was reading Tolkien, but I think that Tolkien's depiction of the Wraith world had been kind of influencing how I was receiving the Upside Down when I was watching Stranger Things, especially in the first season of Stranger Things, where there is where there's the creature, right, who's like not normally i mean they, like there's the question of like the the dubious visibility or appearance of the creature right we you know where we you know can you really see it and everything and and the way in which there's this like overlay of our world and uh anyway you know the coming and going and the snatching and taking away into the upside down and everything. so it's it's uh i think that my understanding uh, my earlier understanding that is earlier than two weeks ago. Uh, my earlier understanding of the Wraith world uh, in Tolkien, I think, had really influenced uh, my reception of the Upside Down. But anyway, the point that Wyatt's making is it's not exactly like that um, at all. Uh, and uh, even if we're tempted to think of it that way, the thing that one of the things that defines the Upside Down in Stranger Things is that it is. It's not only a parallel sort of universe, but it's a corrupted universe uh, in some ways. We don't get a lot of uh, sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of theory of the Upside Down in the uh, series so far. But the idea that it's sort of twisted, that it's sort of dirty, sort of corrupted, um, is uh, definitely something that you can see in the show. Um, Wise point is that if we're tempted to look at the Wraith world like that, right... Um, and and there is definitely temptation to think in that way, right? That this this other world, this world that 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 Frodo goes into, or at least partially goes into, when he puts on the ring, this place where the ring wraiths already live full time, uh, to see that as this kind of overlay of our world, but it's an evil place, right? It's the place of the wraiths. It's uh, it's this uh, uh, this sort of half life into which you're drawn, right? Um, I think that a lot of people, uh, my sense is, I think that many people think of the Wraith world like that. Well, I know, because Peter Jackson seemed to think of it that way, right? Uh, the, the the film depiction itself, um, and I, I, I don't mean, I'm not even thinking about all the people whose readings have been influenced by uh, the, that depiction in the films, but even just the depiction in the films itself seems to suggest that kind of thing, right? Not that it's corrupted, it's not, it's not dirty, it's not, like, corroded, um... Uh, uh, like we see in Stranger Things, but rather it's uncertain, it's misty, and 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 un- distances are unclear. You can't really see anything. There's this like rushing sound, right? So all of the senses are are strange, and you can see. I mean, you know, after our readings, you can see right where um, uh, where. Jackson was coming from, right? Where Jackson's team was coming from there. Um, that is to say, you know, Frodo with the, you know, his friends looking distant and the, the, the grayness, right? Coming down before his eyes as he's being wraithified from his wound and everything. There's, there's definitely some root in the text of that depiction, but it's not exactly, that's not a full picture, right? That's not really what it's like. Anyway, let me go on with why it's explanation here. Um, he says, the raids in this model are permanently in the other dimension, and only projections of their being bleed through into the main dimension. I don't like this interpretation, though, he says, mainly after we learn what Frodo sees of Glorfindel, as he himself is mainly in the Wraith world. He perceives him as a bright, shining light. 
we don't get enough information to learn if this is unique to Glorfindel or if all elves possess this property, but it could suggest that the Wraith world is not necessarily an inherently evil place, but a neutral dimension that both the darkness and the light exist in. Exactly. Now, again, sort of adding to that some of the things that we were looking at last time, we know it's not unique to Glorfindel, right? And it's not even exactly an elf thing intrinsically, right? It's a Valinor thing. Those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm, Gandalf says, right? So elves, who, the, 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 the Moriquendi, the Dark Elves, the elves who have never been to Valinor, don't have it, right? They're, they're not there. Glorfindel has because he has, right? Um, he does because he has. He, 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 he dwells in both places at once. Um, and so that conclusion that we were coming to last time, that kind of remarkable conclusion that really sort of blew my own mind um, uh, as we were sort of seeing this unfold together last time, um, was... I, I, just along the lines that Wyatt is thinking here, but I would I would take it a good deal further, right? It's not only that it's not inherently an evil place. Um, the sort of Valinor is sort of is that other place in a sense, almost, right? That's like the um, the true home of that place, right? If you still live in both places, if you're here in Middle Earth, but you're still kind of also living in that other world, that other spiritual dimension. Um, that's like holdover, right? Just from the the influence that that realm has had on you. Um, and the way in which, of course, Valinor has been removed now from the world post-fall of Numenor, right? Uh, really kind of emphasizes how it, it, it operates on a different plane. Um, so... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Tony, it is much more like that classic concept of fairy as a parallel plane to our own. It's not, I, I, I would not want to push that too far, right? Th that is to say, Tony, what I would not want, what I want, want to make sure nobody thinks I'm saying is that he's, he's just talking about fairy, right? This is, we can understand this as a fairy thing. No, I think it's parallel to it, right? Just as it shares elements with, um, it shares elements with fairy, right? Just as fairy, the boundaries of fairy are uncertain, right? And fairy can kind of overlap with our world and you can be in our world and you can be in fairy at the same time and sometimes not, right? It's kind of uncertain. There, there, there are things that are similar between them, but this is definitely not Tolkien simply invoking the concept of, of the traditional concept of fairy. Um, so... Again, so back to Wyatt's final point there, a neutral dimension that both the darkness and the light exist in. Yes, sort of, right? I mean, yes, in that Gorfindel's there and the raids are there, right? So yes, both darkness and light exist there. But I don't get the feeling that they necessarily have equal citizenship papers in that place, right? I think that there's a re good reason why the Wraiths withdraw when Glorfindel approaches, right? Um, and of course, in part, it's a light versus shadow situation, right? Shadows generally flee when light comes in. Um, but I, but I think that that itself is is sort of a symbol of a of a of a kind of a deeper thing here, right? The Wraiths 
are there. Yes, they they that's kind of their home plane now, right? They are, you know, uh, more of themselves is there in that spiritual dimension now than is in our dimension, right? They only have uh, a much more tenuous connection. Not a, they, they, they don't have no connection, right? They still can wear boots and ride horses and hold knives um, and speak and, you know, uh, creep out the gaffer and all that kind of thing. Um, but they, they, they do have a kind of permanent residency there. But Tony, exactly. Uh, it's like they're trespassing. It's not really their home plane, right? What has happened to the wraiths is unnatural, right? That's not what happened to like wraithification is not the way it's supposed to go, right? That's not how if you, you can think about the parallel. And this is kind of where we were ultimately going last time. Elves, right? Born in Middle-earth, if they go to Valinor, they then live at once in both places, right? But for elves, that is like a fulfillment of their nature, right? An elf who dwells at once in both places is an elf who is enriched, right? Whose, whose, whose life and experience is enriched by getting both sides, right? There's elven home, and there's Middle-earth where the elves were originally placed, right, by Iluvatar. Um, I think it's it's fairly clear to me that both is good, right? Um, that is, in a sense, I think, a fulfillment of the nature of the elves. That's how they're made to be. Not so with humans, right? Um, which, of course, the wraiths were. When the ring wraiths, right? When the nine kings who put on the rings of power and become ring wraiths, when they got wraithified with anything, right? Human king or friendly hobbit gets wraithified, they are being dragged into that world and it's unnatural. It's doing damage to them. Like it, it it's not just that it does damage to them to be there. They're there because damage has been done to them. Like it's it it is damage to them. Um so, um, so they're there, but again, they don't, that's not normal. That's not, um, uh, that's not natural really. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fourth Dauntless, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's recalling the, uh, discussion from season two, uh, of the Silmarillion film project when we were thinking about the question of what was is it actually good for the elves to go to Valinor? What, what, what is the real home and the real purpose and the real destiny of the elves? Um, uh, yeah, now I was thinking about that a lot there. Um, so, anyway. Um, so again, is both darkness and light there in that spiritual dimension? Yeah, definitely. Right? But not necessarily on the same terms. Certainly not with Glorfindel and the Wraiths, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Scudo, exactly. The Silmarillion does suggest that it was a mistake by the Valar to take the elves out of Middle-earth and bring them to Valinor. Um, that's exactly what we were... But but yet, it's called Elvenholm, right? Uh, and the... And it, Anyway, we we spent a lot of time talking about that for exactly those reasons. Um, so, 
Let me keep going. I'm still haven't even finished reading Wyatt's comments here. Okay. So he says, I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that the glowing light is a property of all elves. Well, I don't think so, but it's fine. Um, what, it's hard because he wrote this before we had this whole long discussion. I wouldn't, hadn't even thought of all these things myself before last time. What might be the explanation for this property? And why wouldn't hobbits or mortals appear as anything more than shadows in the wraith world? One of the biggest distinctions in my mind that separates elves from men is their immortal souls. Agreed. Agreed on that one. We know that elves, as the firstborn, have a spirit that will always remain in, uh, in Middle-earth or Valinor. The mortal beings like the hobbits and men do not have this property. Yes. Could it be that the wraith world is in some spir- spiritual, spiritual dimension that elves with their immortal soul naturally inhabit? This theory offers an interesting explanation for wraithification, the drawing of a mortal being into the immortal spiritual realm. Perhaps taking a finite mortal being and thrusting him into the spiritual realm is what accounts for the stretching. I think that's great. I think that's, that seems to me almost exactly right, actually, Wyatt. Oh, good, Wyatt, you're here. I didn't see you before amidst all the other comments. Yeah, that that I think, is, that, that seems to me exactly right. Um, the thing that we know, the number one thing that differentiates elves and men, right? The firstborn and the secondborn. Um, it's not an immortality question, right? That's not, I mean, it's, it's easy to say that. And a lot of people would say, um, if you, if you ask people, right, you ask Tolkien fans, what's the number one difference between elves and men? Most people will be like, well, the elves are immortal and the humans are mortal, right? Which is sort of true in a sense, but that's not really the thing, right? And this is where I saw some of you guys talking about the Athrobeth of uh, Finrod and Endreth, uh, which is in Morgoth's Ring, Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth. That is, like, my second favorite thing. Leaf by Niggle is my number one favorite thing uh, uh, of Tolkien's. I mean, you know, the Lord of the Rings as a whole aside. Um uh, the Athrobeth is like my second favorite thing uh, of all of Tolkien's short pieces. Absolutely love it. And this is one of the things that they get into, right? Both elves and humans are immortal. The difference is, where's their home, right? For elves, you can debate whether it's Middle-earth or Valinor, but one thing's for sure, it's here, right? It's Arda. Elves are, their lives are bound to Arda. Their existence is coterminous with Arda, right? Uh, Arda is their place. They belong here. Humans don't, right? Humans visit here for a while, right? During the span of their mortal lives, and then they go somewhere else the elves know not whither, right? So the, 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 and, and in both places, we're talking about their spirits, right? The bodies, both of elves and men, are sort of fungible, right? Um, humans leave their bodies behind and, and go off. Do they get other bodies elsewhere? Well, who knows? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Elves can recycle bodies. They can, you know, rebuild bodies. Um, you know, you can, you can, you can do different things, but it's your, it's your fea, it's your spirit, uh, that really matters, that really defines you, right? The, the spirit of elves bound here to Arda, which again encompasses everything, Middle Earth and uh, Valinor as well, and out there, right, wherever it is that humans go, uh, their souls are there, right. 
So yes, when therefore that that seems to be the fundamental one of the ways I think in which we can understand uh, the wraithification process as this kind of fundamental violation, right? Um, and in a sense, of course, it's like the whole uh, immortality issue spelled out differently or thought through in a different framework, right? Um, that is, we already know, right? It's it's a, a, a sort of a much more clear and obvious thing that seeking immortality is bad, right? Humans who try to cling on to life, that's not a good thing. And so we, 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 we can all see part of the downfall of the nine rider, the, the, the nine riders, right? The nine black riders. Um, and of course we can see Bilbo's comment about butter stretched over too much bread, extrapolating to Gollum and then further extrapolating to the ring rates, Right. And they, you know, they're the butter that they have left is exceptionally thin. Right. Um, but this is, I think, another way of conceiving this, which to me makes a really great deal of sense and helps me to understand this uh, a lot better, right? Um, so when a more so go back to uh, um, Wyatt's characterization here, the drawing of a mortal being into the immortal spiritual realm is what wraithification is, right? And that's kind of, again, that's unnatural. That's not where their souls are meant to be. That's kind of rooting their souls here in that framework of Arda, right? Which is not where it is meant to be. Um, last time we were looking at how this sets up Frodo's healing and Bilbo's healing as well in the end, right? They have been exposed they have been exposed to this world in this unnatural way. The, the ring has dragged them into this way, in a way which is disruptive, right? In a way which is destructive because they're not, it's not their place, right? Um, it's not where they are, um, it's not where they are meant to be. It's not how they are meant to be. How are they healed? <laughs> By going to Valinor. Right. Um, by going into that other realm um, in this different sense. Right. Where men are not allowed. Right. Men are forbidden from going there. Um, and yet uh, they as mortals are given the grace to go. Um, and it's it. That is the only way that they can find healing uh, for the unnatural way in which they were dragged into it. They don't stay there. They don't live there forever. Sometimes, I mean, I remember being asked that question 10 years ago, right? Uh, uh, a bunch of times. Does Frodo, you know, when Frodo and Bilbo go to the Blessed Realm, does that mean that they live forever? No, it doesn't mean they live forever. They're still mortal. Um, and I think a big part of being healed is being like they're, they're, they're being cleansed. They have this sort of cleansing experience in that other world, right? Which certainly, if it is going to set them right to rights, right? If it is going to, uh, uh, you know, set their own uh, sort of physical and spiritual ship going in the right direction, that direction is out of the circles of this world, right? Um, yeah. So 
that's and that's why I've often said I think they they might have died earlier than they would have done. Uh, Frodo presumably could have gone on living. He you know he was suffering, but didn't seem life threatening, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, a good. Rococo and Matt are thinking about uh, the cleansing of uh, of 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 purgatory, like that. Um, it is like that. I hmm. I want to quibble. I don't think I'll quibble in detail. All I'll say is, purgatory is about cleansing you of your. Own, like the consequences of your own decisions, like the uh, correcting, like the faults that you have allowed to develop in your own character, right? It's 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 about correcting uh, your sins. Um, this is about healing in a different sense, uh, and again, the the invitation to Bilbo and Frodo to come to the blessed realm seems to me to be about. I don't want to say apology or um, to make up for things as if it was exactly the elves' fault, right? I'm not saying that. But um, they've had something done to them, which wasn't their plan, right? They didn't know what was happening uh, to them. They didn't understand that when Bilbo finds his invisibility ring, right, he doesn't get the fact that he is uh, doing this bad spiritual thing to himself, right? So they're offering to set it to rights. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. Mornowin, I have always believed that their lives would actually be shortened by living in Valinor. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, again... I ask myself, what does the healing process look like? Or rather, what's the, how do you know when you're healed, right? Um, when is, when is Frodo going to be cured of his wounds? Um, and I don't think it's when he becomes a happy and well-adjusted citizen of the blessed realm because he's not, he can't be, he's, he's mortal, right? It's not his place. Um, the, the, where Aragorn ends up, right? Aragorn's death scene, that is like the goal, right? Uh, his, the, 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 the way in which he departs the mortal realm uh, and goes to wherever it is that humans go, of, you know, where the elves know not beyond the circles of the world, that's how it's meant to happen, right? That is what a healthy soul of the second children, second born children of Iluvatar looks like, right? Um, it's really the template right there. So yeah, if Frodo is, um, when Frodo is healed, he's going to die and his spirit is going to happily like Aragorn's happily, peacefully, uh, gratefully go. Right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Boomful. I didn't mean to spoil Aragorn's death right there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. 
good. Okay. Um, lots more we could talk about there, but thanks Wyatt for, and again, this is especially cool because Wyatt had posted all this before we had the discussion last week. I didn't want to talk about this before we talked about the passage. So I had this, uh, uh, this question from Wyatt queued up to talk about right after we finished the slide last time, but we didn't get to it. Um, but I was glad to start with it tonight so I can kind of review some things because I was still kind of grasping around a little bit last time. Um, yeah, Matt. Yes, exactly. Matt says a better parallel than a better parallel than purgatory, perhaps, uh, would be the results of the Grail quest for everybody but Galahad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or even Galahad, right? Galahad and Percival uh, both die, right? Galahad, of course, has his ascension experience. It's, it's a little bit different, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right. Let us then return to the passage we were looking at. Here's the half a slide that I said we were going to get through today because, oop, here it is. Um, this is the slide we were talking about, the living at once in both worlds, the seen and the unseen, uh, the white figure, which was Gorfindel, but we didn't... Um, we didn't get to the very end, which I, there's some important stuff here. And Tony, you had mentioned this on Twitter yesterday. And I'm like, no way we are. There is absolutely no way uh, that we're going to move on without discussing this, that line that Tony had mentioned. Absolutely. Which is so last paragraph. Yes. You saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side. One of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf Lord of a house of princes Indeed, there is power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire. But all such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. All right. There are two things, two threads that I would want to follow here. The first is that reference to the Shire. Um, Gandalf is responding to the question, what about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Right. And he's also, of course, immediately responding to the question, was that Gorfindel then? But remember, this is in the context of that question at the top of the slide, is Rivendell safe? And we talked about the double meaning of that question, right? On the one hand, it means, uh, is Rivendell, like, are, are the bike riders going to invade? Like, do I have to be looking over my shoulder? Are we safe here in Rivendell? But it also means, is Rivendell safe from betrayal? Is it going to be... Um, remember, we were talking about that context when he asks, what about Rivendell and the elves? Right? Are they safe from Sauron? Are they going to... Um, you know, can they be corrupted? Can they be turned? Um, what's going on? So he says, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while. Um, so Rivendell is safe in that other sense as well. He answers the other, the first one, you know, uh, the elves may fear the Dark Lord and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. Don't have to worry about that, right? And also, in the other sense... Um, Riven, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while. One thing, just small thing that I would emphasize there, 
um, and Tony, it's relevant to the other discussion, right? Is remember that might doesn't always look the same way, right? Um, Rivendell might not seem enormously defensible. I mean, okay, you've got a ford and you've got, you know, mountain slopes and stuff and it's a hidden valley, but it's not just by secrecy, right, that Rivendell is defended. Um, There's no, like, awesome defensive fortifications, right, that repel evil. It's not how it works. Once again, we're reminded that the biggest battle is the spiritual battle. Right? And when it comes to the spiritual side of things, Rivendell is a fortress. Rivendell is a bastion which even the enemy himself, should Sauron show up in person, he would not be able to enter Rivendell, at least for a while. Right? To withstand the might of Mordor for a while. Not indefinitely. Um, but it could do pretty well. And Tony, I agree. I do think that all that tra-la-la-lollying is a big part of it. Is it a coincidence that the elves sing their ridiculous song out there? Like, it's the first thing you see when you come into Rivendell, right? Is elves singing tra la la lolly? No, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? Those folks were perimeter guards, Right. You, you got to set up a good tralalalali out on the edges, right, in order to make sure that evil cannot enter the valley. Um, anyhow, that's so Gandalf is emphasizing, yes, Rivendell is safe. Right. There is a power here which makes it there's the ring rates cannot come here. Evil does not enter into this valley. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, just says now I really want to see the Rivendell duty roster. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you know, get put on, <laughs> put on tralalalali duty. Are there other duties, right? In addition to the singing and the baking of bannocks, do they do other things too? Is it, is it like dancing? Uh, you know, like, uh, 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 pottery <laughs> you know like that i i don't know you know painting is that, is that is that one of it too i'm not sure um but yeah uh there's there's all of these uh all of this spiritual element of rivendell right um and yes of course the power of elrond and avilia we'll get back to that in a second um so um yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, I missed your name there. But uh, uh, looking at how uh, the the goblins also seem to set up their perimeters with their black crack song, right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, having established, Rivendell is strong, right? It is a strong defensive position, but really primarily, possibly even only, in a spiritual sense, right? Um, There is... Let's think of that context when Gandalf then says there is power, too, of another kind in the Shire. The Shire is also a place of strength. So, what's difficult to kind of tease out here, Gandalf has said simultaneously there's a kind of parallel here, right? That, that Rivendell, just as Rivendell is strong, so the Shire 
is strong as well, right? Um, such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on as they are going, right? So they're similar. But he also explicitly says that they're different, right? That there's power of another kind in the Shire. It's the same kind of power as is in Rivendell. Um, so the trick is trying to figure out where the similarities lie, where, where the differences are, right? And I'm inclined to think that the difference does not lie in the, like, ty- I think that he's still talking about spiritual power. Um, we know that the Shire is not invulnerable, right? Uh, that is, that, you know, evil does not come to Rivendell. Well, evil does come to the Shire. That we know. Right, the ringwraiths can enter it as they seem not to be able uh, to enter Rivendell. They didn't even want to cross the ford. They certainly aren't going to waltz down to the last and knock on the door of the last homely house, right, asking for baggins and offering gold. Um, so it's clearly different in kind, right? He doesn't. Gandalf doesn't say that the Shire could withstand the might of Mordor for a while. Right? It probably couldn't. Um, the Shire's probably not as strong as Rivendell, but again, I don't think it's just a question of quantity, right? Just a question of uh, uh, who has the most power. Um, so, power of a different kind. Again, I don't think it could be... It's simply a question of like physical power versus spiritual power. Both are spiritual power, but I think the qualities are different, right? Um, and they certainly come from different things. I mean, okay, one comes from hobbits and one comes from elves, so to say they come from different things seems a little bit obvious. Um, but that itself, I think, points to different things. Look at the strength in Frodo, right? The strength that led him to resist uh, the power of the wound. Look at the way that the hobbits have been confounding the Witch King and his plans for weeks now. Right, the way in which the Witch King has been, the Witch King and the Ringwraiths have had a, a, a you know a heck of a time trying to make any. Pro- they thought this was going to be a lot easier than it turned out to be, right? Um, and I still love that image of the two riders who hold back at the edge of the dell, even when the Witch King is right there ordering them forward. They're not coming, right? Um, there is power of a kind in the Shire as well, right? So when they are standing together by the fire, it's not just the fear of the fire, right? When the ringwraiths are being routed out of Buckland, right, by the Bucklanders, there is power of a kind in the Shire. It is different. Um, uh, And so it's fun to think about. This would be a great paper, actually. What is the difference between the kind of power that's in Rivendell and the kind of power that's in the Shire, right? Um, what do we see? What, what, what are the patterns that we can discern um, in the, the, the kind of spiritual power that the hobbits have versus the kind of spiritual power that the elves have? Um, anyway, uh, really, uh, really interesting and fun. Um, but uh, I, I, we, we're not going to solve that tonight. But this is one of the things that I definitely think is important to remember when you're trying to figure, and we've talked about a bunch of things, right? I mean, we've looked at the 
We've looked at so far every scene. Mm, yeah, we've gotten them all. We have talked about every single time the ring wraiths go into the Shire. So, you know, in all of the Lord of the Rings, right? It's never going to happen again. So um, every single uh, piece of evidence of a ring wraith acting within the Shire we've discussed. And so when we talk about the difficulties that they've been having, we talked about this less back in chapter three than when we finally got up to like chapters 10 and 11. Um, but one of the things that I often have emphasized over the years when people want to ask, when, when people want to criticize, right? When, when they want to be like, I don't understand why does Tolkien like sandbag the, you know, why does Tolkien nerf the ring wraiths, right? Why do the ring wraiths can, what, you know, how is it that they're thwarted in the Shire? Um, how does the ring wraith just stand there and like take lip off the gaffer, right? What, why would like, how would that happen? One of the things that I think is important to recall is is what Gandalf says here, right? There is power in the Shire. It's not strong enough to prevent them crossing the border, but it's but it's there, right? I do think that the ring rates are weaker. Um, remember also Strider saying things like in darkness and loneliness, uh, you know, is their strength, right? Um, they are strengthened when they're together. They're strengthened when you are alone and frightened. Um, when they are in the, sh- we see the difficulty they have in Buckland, right? They're not helpless in Buckland. They do have power. Um, and we see them laying their own whammy on the house at Crick Hollow, right? But we also see them flee away uh, when the hobbits respond. It's not easy for them. So even when they're only confronted by people like the gaffer or like Farmer Maggot, uh, I say only as if those two gentlemen are not enormously um, uh, significant uh, and uh, considerable in themselves. Um, But, um, yeah, I wonder... Catriona says, would that play into a reason why the wraiths that besieged Crick Hollow had to stand around and concentrate for hours to build up enough mojo? Maybe. Well, Catriona, I'm not sure I would say it like that. I'm not sure that, like, it takes them twice as long to, you know, work up the power of shadow, you know, because they're operating at a disadvantage. Um, Kind of like the hope and dread mechanic within Lotro, right? Where, you know, except like in reverse where the ring rates have like severe penalties uh, because they're in a place where the hope is high, right? So they've got to overcome that, you know, so they've got to buff up a lot before they can do that. I don't think that that's exactly how it works. But what I, what I would say, um, Katriana, is that what, what I think we see them doing there is like, I was about to say isolating Crick Hollow, like obviously, you know, they're sort of surrounding it, but um but they turn the house at Crick Hollow into a place that is like them, right? That is their kind of place. They sort of assert a kind of spiritual dominance over that place, right? And only after they've done that, only after they have filled that place with shadow and fear and horror and dread do they invade, right? Um, remember, there's 
I, I would add, I, I would, or maybe I should say, I would extrapolate from Gandalf's comment. There is power too of another kind in the prancing pony, right? The black riders don't cross the threshold of that either. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Good. Let's see. Yeah, I, I agree, Tony. They're being stronger in the wild. Um, seems to me not like, you know, because, uh, you know, the forest and swamps are their natural environment, uh, uh, and therefore they have advantages. Uh, you know, they get buffs from the environment there, but rather, again, it is the antipathy of the things that weaken them, right? Community, um, uh, joy, peace, um, love, friendship, all of those things are, uh, against them. Um, exactly. Uh, Lincoln Aragorn says they're not going to invade the end unless they're truly desperate. Right. Um, yeah. And it's an act of not quite desperation, but, uh, you know, their attack at Weathertop at the Dell, even that's dodgy. Right. And they're not in the Prancing Pony there. Um, yeah, I do like, uh, uh, Bruce, that idea that they kind of turn the house at Crick Hollow into a little mini Morgul Vale. Um, that's well thought of, right? When you look at what the Morgul Vale is like, um, that's the end state, right? Um, it's not going to be quite that bad, right? They're not going to be able to do that in just a couple hours. But it's like what they do, right? They need to kind of put their own... Sp- spiritual impression they've got to they've got to they've got to make the environment not physically but spiritually friendly to them right to their point of view here um yeah yeah um exactly in the wilderness thing it's a lot of this seems to be about about home and about community so the strangeness of the wild and the isolation of the wild, those are dangerous things, right? Um, and it's one of the things that makes Strider remarkable because he's a ranger, right? He's an outcast, a vagabond, a wanderer. He has no home. He has no community that anyone can see. Now we know that it is not true that he has no community, but that's how it looks, right? From uh, the Bree perspective, Um and yet he's able to foster it, right? He's able to build it. He's able to sing his song and to uh, uh, um, encourage the hobbits and help them to, you know, stand by the fire and um, and oppose the ringwraiths. Anyway, all right. Second point that I want to make about this second paragraph, or this last paragraph, rather. Look at the way in which Gandalf's thoughts are going. Right, the way that they are, um, the direction that they're pointing. He is already thinking about the war that is coming. Um, indeed, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. In which case, he's probably thinking about Lorien here, but 
he might just as well be thinking about the prancing pony as well. Probably not, but it would still be true of it. Um, uh, there seems to be a kind of a transition in Gandalf's thinking, though, right? In the first half of the paragraph, he is primarily focused on the strength of Rivendell, the nature of elves, and the strength of and, and their and their strength, right? Gorfindel's strength against the Ringwraiths, and the strength of elves, the strength of Rivendell, in general, right? But look how he transitions. So when he first says, "There's a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while," he's making a statement about the power in Rivendell. How strong is it in Rivendell? Oh, they could, they could withstand the might of Mordor for a while. But once he brings that up, it's like once Gandalf raises the specter of the might of Mordor being brought against Rivendell, that's the direction he starts to think, right? Notice how his, his thoughts seem to begin to move in that way. Um, all such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. The paragraph does not end up at the place where it began, right? Um, I do think that we can see Gandalf's thought progressing, right? Moving along here. Um, As he explains the strength of their allies, this inevitably leads him to be thinking not only about the strength of their enemy, but about the plans of their enemy. This is him saying, it's time, right? It's time. Um, Yeah, come to think of it, the might of Mordor may come to Rivendell, right? The island, the, the Shire might become an island under siege. That's the direction things are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength, right? That's what the ringwraiths mean. The fact that Sauron is... I mean, there are several things that it means, right? It means he knows about the ring, right? That he is now hot on the scent as he is hunting for the ring. He knows where to hunt for it now. Um, But it's not just that, right? Um, The fact that the ringwraiths have come, the fact that they have emerged from Mordor, means... The day has come. A lot of... I forget whether it was here or somewhere else. Um, Relatively recently, uh, I was discussing with a bunch of listeners about all the time that elapses. Um, How there are all these long gaps on the tale of years, right? Where nobody seems to be doing anything. Sauron is gaining strength and what that means. We'll talk about that more, I think later on, but, um, it is clearly a thing, right? It is clearly a thing that Sauron builds up his strength and builds up his, and when he deems himself strong enough, which is, I think both physical in terms of armies and spiritual, um, when he deems himself strong enough, it's time to attack. The fact that the ringwraiths have crossed the river, the fact that the ringwraiths have invaded the West, he has sent them out, that means the time has come. He's going on the offensive now. He's not just waiting. He's not just gathering his strength. Um, 
the Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. That's significantly, yes, it is a declaration of open war, Tony. That's exactly it. Yeah, Fort Thoughtless is imagining Gandalf kicking himself after saying this. Of all the things not to say to Frodo when he's recovering from a Morgul wound, uh, this is probably top of the list of things you shouldn't be saying, right? Uh, yes, a second darkness will be moving across the land any time now, right? Um, uh, soon, everything you know and love, and everything that you think is great or good, is likely to become like an island under siege, right? Soon to be swamped uh, under the flood of the dark tide of evil that is overcoming the world. So, cheer up, Frodo, and get better, right? I totally hear you there. Um <laughs> Belongsmont says the heart monitor is going beep, 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 beep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> hold on to that thought uh, because we're going to um, uh, we're we're going to come back to it. Um, what I find fascinating here is what happens to Gandalf and what Gandalf does. Um, but before we do that, let's look at a couple more questions which are related to that. First, first from Fourth Dauntless. Um, a question from last week's class. is During this week's class, I was very troubled by the notion that Celebrimbor poured not only his own power, uh, but that of the other elf lords into the Great Rings. Uh, I propose this as an explanation for the failure of Elvedom on, uh, in Middle-earth after the destruction of the One. I'm troubled because it implies that Celebrimbor forcibly extracted some of the spiritual strength or whatever of the other elves to make the rings. We don't see any evidence that this is possible, and it seems to me unlikely that Celebrimbor would have done this uh, uh, if he were merely deceived by Sauron rather than being entirely fallen. I prefer, and especially I would add for Thoughtless, if he's if the three rings are not corrupted, right? As we're told that they're not, right? At least Elrond claims that. I prefer to think that the elves could no longer maintain their separate realms within Middle-earth without the power of the three. Their power had waned as they exerted their strength to maintain these realms, and they chose to leave rather than to lose the beauty and peace of their land apart. Notice that we get no information that Thranduil's realm, which has stronger natural defenses, was abandoned at the same time of Lorien. Okay. Um... All right, first of all, it was two weeks ago, which means I've already forgotten half of what I said last time. But um, I, I, as I recall, this is when we were, I was responding to another question from the discussion boards about the externalization of power and all that stuff. And um, I I'm pretty sure, Fourth Dauntless, that I did not mean to imply that Celebrimbor was, like, f- extracting, like, part of Galadriel's soul and putting it into the Three Rings. Um, I agree. That would be pretty bad. Uh, and I, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think so. So, um...
this all opens up much bigger questions, which is going to lead me to my next slide, by the way. But uh, so I'll come to actually to that in just a second before we finish talking about this one, because it's about the same thing. Um, but no fourth on list, I think it's very likely that I've uh, was was quite unclear about that. So let me let me see if I can think this through more clearly. Sauron had to put his own strength into the ring. He had to weaken himself in order to do it because he was attempting to attain mastery over the other rings, right? Um, This seems to me a fundamentally different process. Well, okay. A different process. But it's got some similarities to what the elves do. So let's think about a couple things. First of all, we've already seen how when like a magical item is made or what hobbits like Sam and gamers would call magical items, right, are involve the spirit of the smith, right, uh, putting some of his own spirit into the weapon in, in the like the hatred of Angmar, right? Uh, and the desire to destroy the Witch King and his works is what is magic about Frodo's old sword, right? About those Barrow Down swords, um, uh, as of course Mary is going to show later on. Spoiler. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, we've already looked at that. We've already talked about that. How that does seem to be, you know, you 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 put part in in that sense. You put part of yourself into that. But there's another model. Um, And here again, I have to kind of jump ahead to talk about this. Um, Yeah, Trifle, I'm not going to jump back there. Trifle's remembering the Silmarils and Feanor's claim that they're tied to his life, right? That if if the Silmarils are destroyed, that he, Feanor, will die. Trifle, the reason I don't want to go there is that... I am not sure how much to believe Feanor. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm just not sure it's true. Right? Um, to, and this is an exaggeration. When a medieval courtly lover says to his lady that he'll die if she doesn't go to bed with him, it's probably not true. He might feel that way very sincerely, right? His saying that may be a very sincere expression of a very real emotion, right? Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's objectively true. And I kind of, uh, I kind of, yeah, um, Tony, I'm not sure that that Fanor is right about that. Uh, Again, I, I think he's expressing something true. Is his life, in fact, tied up with them? Uh, is there an in, indeed some kind of real spiritual connection? I mean, are, are like the Silmarils, you know, you know, the Noldor and, uh, you know, Horcruxes of Feanor? I, I don't see much other than that one statement by uh, Feanor, which is made at an impassioned moment uh, where he seems really trying to make a rhetorical point about the Silmarils more than he is having an objective philosophical discussion about the spiritual nature of the Silmarils and their connection to him, the Smith. Right. So anyway, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think in the end, I don't consider that a great 
data point. Um, and Iwan Dillian, you're right. He's also kind of justifying his own behavior here. Uh, so yeah, I, I, this is why I kind of, uh, myself hear that all, all that with a, with a grain of salt. But anyway, um, a better data point, I think a more relevant data point is Haldir, the elves of Lorien and the magic cloaks, right? So when the hobbits ask, are these magic cloaks, right? Remember what the elves say? That they put the thought of the things that they love into all the things that they make. So the magic cloaks act like they do because they have the thought of grass and stones and trees and everything in them, right? Um, so... Um, that's, that seems to me different. If you're going to make a cloak and you're going to put not yourself, but like essence of tree, right? Essence of rock, essence of whatever, right? Into the cloak, you're doing something different. Certainly something very different from what Sauron does with the one ring. Right, investing it with a large portion of his own power, of his own will, of his own spirit. Right. Um, so, I <laughs> see you guys talking about doing exploring the Silver Million. I might have to appoint an heir before <laughs> before we get that far. I'll I'll probably make it to thirty thirty one. I'm I'm feeling pretty good about that. Uh, but, uh, who knows? Anyway, um, so, Trifle asks him, I'm seeing a love versus self difference in what's being placed in the object. Yes. In a sense, I am. Um, and that seems to me also to map onto the three rings. What's this power of the three rings? What are the three rings for? The three rings are for preserving unstained the things that the elves love, right? It is about those things, right? So the power that's put into the three rings is, I think, not Celebrimbor putting his own or anybody else's power inside the rings, right? what the rings can do. The elves desire healing, right? The elves desire um, the, pre- the, 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 the the healing and the preservation of these of the things that they love. We see this in Rivendell. We see this in Lorien as well, right? Um, so is it, you know, essence of you know, Malorn tree, you know, essence of um, homely house, right? Something like that. You know, that's uh, essence of, of the jewel forges, you know, of uh, Celebrimbor uh, and his and his people. Um, that's what the power of the three rings is. Um, Let me go on to the next slide. Amy's Revenge had a very similar question, uh, discussion. 
And here he was thinking specifically about Sauron and Gandalf, but I think this really kind of approaches the same kind of question. Sauron and Morgoth invest their followers and or artifacts with some of their personal power. In exchange, they get more control over the minions, who become more powerful and act as hands or eyes for the Dark Lord or Lords. What does Gandalf do in opposition? Is there some element of him drawing power from his followers? leaving them independent, and he becomes more powerful through the willing efforts of his team and the sharing of their pooled powers? It's not really like that. I'm still struggling to frame it. I'm trying to set them up as opposites, and even as unexpected opposites. The bad guys are the ones spending power out, and the good guys are the ones drawing power in, which on the surface is the opposite of what you'd maybe expect. Agreed, that does sound opposite, right? Um, so, I... Uh, All right. I think the problem here, I think the problem here, Mike, is that you're thinking about this. You're thinking about this in terms of a, a sort of a more literal opposite than it needs necessarily to be. Like it's not opposite in the sense of in versus out. I think, um, I think it's different. I think it's different. Um, it's not necessarily opposite. Um, yes. Lalith says, doesn't Gandalf support others emotionally and that's one of his strongest powers direct from Nienna? Yes. Yes. Um, now, one of the challenges with this here is if we're thinking about the three rings and the power of the three rings, we have to differentiate the power of the three rings from the power of the wielders of the three rings, right? Um, Gandalf's power, Galadriel's power, Elrond's power is not necessarily the same thing as the three rings. Indeed, the three rings, two of those three rings, are hand-me-downs, right? They weren't even designed for those people. So it's it's hardly... You cannot say that Narya, um, least of all Narya, right? Least of all of Narya could you say that it is designed uh, to be like an amplifier for Gandalf's personal power, Right? Um, so, yeah, it's challenging to think about what Gandalf does and how he acts and whether or not that is a result of the three rings. Is it him acting on the ring itself? You know, that is, is he kind of channeling the power of Narya in a particular direction, which is different from, say, how Círdan might have channeled the power of that same ring? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Belongsmont says Gandalf seems to be sharing and Sauron seems to be taking, which is, I think, exactly what Mike was saying at the end here when he says it's the opposite of what you'd maybe expect, right? When he was sort of saying that Sauron seems to be giving of himself. Giving is probably not the right word. Forcing of himself upon, right? What Gandalf, or what Sauron does with his followers is less like a gift and more like a rape, 
right? Um, he's he's forcing himself upon them and dominating them with his will. Um, Gandalf also has a relationship with people's wills. So I think that Mike is right to be um, opposing Gandalf and Sauron here, even thinking of them as opposites. I think that's right. Sauron is is wanting to control, and Gandalf is wanting to empower, right, and build up. Um, yeah, and Lalith, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was talking about how giving is not exactly the right thing, and of course, Lalith is reminding us that well, Sauron was a giver, right, a giver of gifts. That was his cover. Um, and that's, I think that's exactly right, right? Um, a gift giver is a disguised assaulter. In his case, absolutely, right? What he tried to dress it up as a gift. Um, but, um, yeah, exactly. Valori's thinking of the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in what sense is the what I'm kind of trying to circle back to, I'm trying to think of the elves in general, the three rings in particular, and Gandalf as well. Not He's not necessarily going to be this, you know, Gandalf and Celebrimbor aren't necessarily going to be the same. Gandalf and Elrond, Galadriel, they're, 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 they're different, right? But how can we understand the difference between how those operate, right? Um... Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Mike just tuned in. Hey, Mike. Yeah, no, don't worry. I haven't missed anything. Yeah, it's all good. Um, uh, yeah, no, we've been talking about your slide here for a while now. Uh, okay, but don't worry. We're not done. So, um, okay. So, how do we understand the difference here? Part of my problem is we don't have enough data yet, right? There's a lot of discussion, even just in the next couple chapters, that is over the next 18 months or so, uh, of, um, you know, about the Elven Rings in particular. We've not come to any passages about the Elven Rings explicitly and their powers yet, or very little anyway, so far. Um, so it's kind of challenging. Um, but... I think I want to come back to um, uh, I want to come back to what we were talking about before about love, right? That example of the 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 Lorian cloaks, right? Um, putting the thought of the things that they love into the things that they make, um, and even Feanor loved the Silmarils, and Celebrimbor loved the work that he did, right? Um, and the elves love that which they seek to preserve, even if their acts to preserve it is not necessarily a great idea, right? I mean, I, I, I tend to think, personally, I think that all of the Rings of Power are a bad idea, right? Like, the, the whole, the concept, categorically, Rings of Power are bad. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a bad idea. That doesn't mean that I'm saying the three elvish rings are evil or corrupt. I'm just saying it's a bad idea. It's unwise, <clears throat> ironically, because of course it's the wise who thought of it and who hold them. Um, but that desire of the elves to superimpose the kind of stasis 
on Middle Earth uh, that they're trying to do, it's um, it's ill advised, right? I mean, it's it's that's not how it's supposed to be. It's a violation. They're not they're not they're not they're not doing it right. Um, I, therefore, there is a significant sense, and here I'm coming back uh, for Thoughtless to where you were coming back to uh, in the end of your question in the previous slide, the fading of the elves and the destruction of the Three Rings. I don't think that the destruction of the Three Rings is bad. Um, it's a tragedy in one sense, right? Um because it brings change and elves don't like that and the fading of the firstborn is going to happen but the fading of the firstborn isn't caused by the destruction of the rings right it's just the rings were being used to kind of stave it off unnaturally which i'm not sure is a good idea right the fading of the firstborn is kind of meant to happen um and i think that that's sort of okay um but um yeah yeah. Um, yeah, Trifle says he's going to go with a love versus power divide rather than love versus self that is putting yourself into the into the artifact. I think the rings slide too close to power over love. There is an element of control in the rings of power, even the three. I agree. I agree. Um, I think that you can see... Elrond can say the elvish rings are not corrupted, right? They were not touched by Sauron. Yes, that's true. Sauron hasn't corrupted them. Um, he does not directly control them. But they were, it was still his idea, right? The idea of rings of power. Hey, what? make rings of power. Um, make rings which will enable you to, like, control Arda, right? Control Middle-earth, or at least bits of it, Right? It's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea. So, Celebrimbor does it, and he does a good job, right? And he, you know, he he makes good rings with good intention to try to achieve a good and noble thing. Um, uh, and they're, you know, in healing and preservation. There's nothing wrong with healing. There's nothing wrong with preservation. But there is something wrong with stasis. There is something wrong with asserting your own will. There's a kind of rebellion there, right? Who made the world the change? Right? Who invented time and the progression of time? Through? That's a Luvatar's kind of idea there, right? Um, in saying, no, we're gonna we're gonna push the pause button here. Uh, in at least this little bit of Middle Earth, they're they're swimming upstream against time itself, against the entire way in which creation is set up. I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, I think the destruction of the rings is good, um, uh, even if the elves don't like it, because they did like what they 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 uh, they appreciate the end uh, that the three elvish rings were focused on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so Belongsman, yes, I would say that the rings corrupt the natural order of things. Because Belongsman, you can connect that back to the other, right? The other thing we were talking about earlier tonight. Um, the elves, the good rings of power, they're still good, but they're they're swimming against the tide of 
creation, right? Um, just as the rings, the nine rings and the one ring in the hands of a hobbit um, unnaturally mess them up spiritually, right? Push them into a spiritual place where they weren't meant to be. Um, if the elves are swimming against the stream, uh, 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 as far as the order of creation is concerned, well, so do, so are the ring wraiths, right? That's not how that's not how Iluvatar set things up. It's not supposed to be that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Scudo, I think it's a good way of thinking about it. There were, uh, uh, there were implications, there were consequences to the technology that Sauron taught them, which they didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, all right. Um, so, Brunier is asking, would that be rebellion against the will of Iluvatar? That's a... Rebellion is a strong word, right? Um, I would say... Here's how I think about it, Brunier. It's like Aule. What Aule did when he made the dwarves was outside the will of Iluvatar. It's not how it was supposed to go, right? The firstborn are supposed to come. Aule, you know this perfectly well, right? You've tried to create your own children like that and you get that's above your pay grade right but he didn't do it for bad reasons and he repented immediately right um you, what Aule did was against the will of Iluvatar and it was it was uh he was swimming upstream as well against uh in his case the expressed will of Iluvatar right um but I would hardly call him a rebel against, you know, I would hardly call that a rebellion against Iluvatar, right? That seems inappropriate. I'm feeling this the same kind of way. I'm not saying that the making of the three elvish rings is exactly the same. There's a lot of differences, obviously. Um, but that's the similarity that I would say. Is it, is what they're doing against the will of Iluvatar? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Um, but I don't think they're rebels, they're more like Aule than Morgoth, I think, when it comes to that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Depending on whether the elves have free will, Tony. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Depending on whether or not elves have free will. All right, I'm just going to say it. Elves obviously have free will. Um, I know. I know that the Silmarillion says that part of the gift to men is the freedom of their wills and that there's a difference in the degree of freedom in the wills of men and the wills of elves. Agreed. 
And we would have to think very carefully through the implications of that, the theological and philosophical implications of that, and what exactly it means for the wills of humans to be more free and in what sense. But the idea that elves have no free will, that they enact without, that they have no ability to make moral choices on their own, is ludicrous. Like, that's a ludicrous idea. It is absolutely... uh, you can't maintain that in the, I don't think you can maintain that rigorously in the context of what happens, um, uh, in Elvish history. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, 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 um, uh, yeah, yeah. I just, I can't, I cannot square the concept of, no free wills at all, at all, right? No free will at all for the elves. I can't square that with really any part of the Silmarillion. But it does—you don't even have to go to the Silmarillion, right? I can't square that with Galadriel, exactly, um, in the Lord of the Rings. Anyway, so to me, that seems uh, an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification I've heard many people make, but um, uh, but it, it's. I think there's much more to it than that. Um, so, yeah. But remember, we're not talking. This is this is me not talking about this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're done. We're done. That's it. No more about the free will of the elves. So I just wanted to explain that I am absolutely operating under the premise that elves have some free will. The thing that I'm really not going to talk about is in what sense are the wills of men freer. Don't worry. When we uh, um, when we get there, right? If we ever go back and do the Silmarillion after this, we'll we'll talk about that. Um, don't worry. Okay. So, where does this leave us? Have we answered the question? I don't think we have. Um, what is the answer to the question? How does the power, as it's exerted here, what is the contrast? Again, you know, just as both Mike and Fourth Dauntless are thinking, good guys on one side, bad guys on the other side, them exerting their power. Um, we can see some similarities. We've been looking at the kind of overlap here uh, between the Elvish rings and the uh, and the the Sauron's rings of power. Um, but there are clearly differences too. And with Gandalf. Meh. Well. Hmm. It's so hard because we don't have it. Maybe we, we, we need to hold on to this and come back to it because I think we need more data here. Um, we've had a, a decent amount of data uh, concerning the power of Sauron and the power of the ring, especially. Um, discussions with Gandalf, Frodo's own experience. Um, we've seen a lot there. But... Um, We don't have much on the Elvish rings. We don't have much even on elf magic exactly. And we certainly have almost nothing about Gandalf yet. Um, We have only once 
seen Gandalf really exert his power? And that was with Bilbo back in chapter one. Does he exert his power with Frodo? I don't think he does, really. Um, at least, again, not as we hear it discussed. Of course, we've seen Gandalf make fireworks uh, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, anyway, I would want to see him in action more. I would want to see him in action more. Yeah, good, Scudo, you're right. We saw him, we heard secondhand, or we saw from a long distance, right, uh, him exerting power at Weathertop, absolutely. Um, here's the thing that I would remind you. Be cautious. Be cautious of the application of what is said about Gandalf in the Valaquinta and what is said about Gandalf in Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age in the Silmarillion. Be careful about applying those to the Lord of the Rings directly. Here's what I mean by that. Those are not... Those are descriptive statements, not prescriptive statements. That is, those things are written after the Lord of the Rings. All of that is written after the Lord of the Rings. All that Gandalf stuff is after the Lord of the Rings. In other words, it's not just that it's chronologically past. Tolkien, after the writing of the Lord of the Rings, is himself looking at the big picture. Right? Where do those statements come from? It's not like... When, no, never mind. I could come at this a different way. When Tolkien says Gandalf's power is to inspire the spirits of others, right? He is not saying that was the idea behind Gandalf all along, right? The concept that informed the construction of Gandalf's character from the beginning was this, right? That's not what he's saying, because that's manifestly untrue, right? We know for a fact he wasn't thinking anything like that about Gandalf at the beginning, certainly not in The Hobbit, right? And even not, I think, at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring. We can see that from the drafts, uh, from the history of The Lord of the Rings. Um, so we know that that's not the case. And uh, Tolkien, unlike certain other fantasy authors I could mention, does not pretend that he always had all his and his final ideas from the beginning, right? What Tolkien is doing is not saying this is a key that you can use to interpret every passage in The Lord of the Rings. What he's saying is, I've been looking at all the passages in The Lord of the Rings, and this is the conclusion that I come to, right? He is describing the pattern that is visible in The Lord of the Rings when he is making those statements. He is not saying this is the secret code that unlocks the Lord of the Rings. Do you see the difference? I think the difference is very important. If we see it as prescriptive, right, this is the thing that underlines, that underlies all of the statements in the Lord of the Rings, right? This is the, this is the, the sort of the true backstage fact of the matter, right, that underlies what Gandalf says 
and does right from the very begin onward. Um, that's, uh, um, when you do that, you're always starting from that final description and you're using that to, in, to, to guide your interpretation. Tolkien came at it. Ex- Tolkien himself came at it exactly the other way around, right? He instead looked at all these passages of the text and says, what's the pattern? You can see this in his letters and things. This is how Tolkien approaches his text, right? The stuff that he did later in life was not, now I'm going to reveal what I was truly thinking, right? Rather, he's saying, now I'm going to show, where has the story brought me? What have I discovered, right? Both by writing the story and by reading the story afterwards, right? What have I discovered? Here's what I've discovered. Turns out, right, from having written The Lord of the Rings, I've learned that this is what Gandalf's power is, right? So what I want to do is I want to find the same thing, right? Um, Because we can make mistakes and we can overlook things if we feel like we already know the answer, right? And we're bringing the... uh, uh, we're bringing the that that answer to these early passages in the text, where that answer I think was clearly not in Tolkien's mind. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, that's why I always want to be careful about that. So, do we have any reason to believe yet that Gandalf's involved? in inspiring the spirits of others. We've seen him be encouraging to Frodo, right? Uh, But we've seen Strider do that too, right? So again, we have to be careful. Um, I think it's much more fun if we can arrive where Tolkien arrived, in the way that he arrived there, right? Rather than um, acting like the destination was always in sight from the beginning, because it wasn't, even for Tolkien, right? And I don't think that he would want us to not have that same experience of discovery, right, as we go through. So, anyway, okay. Um, All right. So let's, rather than trying to force myself to come to a conclusion here, like I'm not going to come to a conclusion here, right? Let's leave this as an open question, which we will return to at various points. What is the difference between, um, you know, using Galadriel's terms, right? The difference between what the elves do and the deceits of the enemy, right? Hobbits call them both magic. The elves don't like that, right? Why not? What's the difference exactly? Um, all right. Well, I started late, but we're uh, uh, we're running out of time, so I should not keep everybody too late here tonight. Um, we did the passage I wanted to talk about. Don't forget, we're going to come back as a transition into here. I'm coming back to, having thought about all of this, uh, I'm coming back to the question that we were looking at here about the Dark Lord putting forth all his strength, where Gandalf goes in this conversation. What happens to Gandalf next is really cool. Uh, so, Looking at the reactions, we'll see both Gandalf's reaction and Frodo's reaction to what's going on here, right? Uh, to where, to the the sort of 
state that Gandalf works himself into, right? Um, so anyway, we'll we'll, uh, we'll look at that next time, uh, and that's going to be fun. Um, meanwhile, it's field trip time again. Time to go back to Rivendell. So let's uh, let's do that. Let's go back to Rivendell. Um, <laughs> good evening, I'm, everyone. Good evening. So I'm going to say good night to the Twitch. No, not the Twitch folks. The Twitter folks. Twitter? Uh, yep. Twitter folks, right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me there. Come and join us at twitch.tv slash signumu uh, if you would like to join us on Twitch. So thanks, everybody, on Twitter. And I will see you guys next week. Okay, there we go. All right. All right. But yeah, you're talking like, you know, Tolkien's process for the Silmarillion being... Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. Okay. The, like, this process for the Silmarillion was, you know, it's the, some of it he had written beforehand, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Because he'd been working on this since his 20s, of course. But, you know, the, the final-ish version was more like, like you said, extrapolating from what he wrote, what I discovered while writing. It's kind of like what we do. We go into the game and we look at what's been put here and we go, okay, why is it here and what have we learned? Right. It's taking, exactly. It's taking existing data. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, when I'm when I'm talking about um, uh, Tolkien discovering things and 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 the Silmarillion stuff coming after, I, I speak. I'm, I'm speaking primarily about the Gandalf material, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that's like uh, of the Rings of Power and the Third Age and the parts of the Valaquenta that talk about Gandalf. That's all. Mm-hmm. This is not the secret backstory of Gandalf, right? I mean, <laughs> it is chronologically within the hist- within middle earth right but it is uh uh it is certainly not what lies behind the gandalf that we meet in the hobbit and in chapter yeah, 1 no. and 2 of uh, the lord of the rings um rather and, it is yeah. the conclusion that tolkien came to mhm yeah and that's you know gandalf's one of the easier ones i mean look at galadriel yeah exactly exactly all right so i think we can we can head off rivendell way uh, while we continue to talk, Absolutely. but no, exactly. Galadriel, he had, you know, there's a lot that he hadn't worked out, uh, with, yeah. uh, with Galadriel. But see, I think the difference there, um, between the, like Gandalf and the Silmarillion and Galadriel and the Silmarillion is that uh-huh. Galadriel, what she was, was sort of known Right. Yes. Um, it's not really a question of like trying to figure out what she is exactly. There was a question of like her history. How did she get to where we see her, and what exactly does it mean? Um, but it's not really a question of um, what she is. Whereas with Gandalf, it really very much was right. I mean, almost yeah. from the beginning, like. Okay, he's a wizard. What does that mean? What is a wizard yeah. exactly? And um, you know, one of my favorite moments where I think we see um I mean it's it there's there's an almost a kind of a like meta fictional moment, right? When Pippin wonders mm-hmm. like what 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 is Gandalf anyway, and when did he enter the world, and and what is <laughs> when did he enter the picture? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's not like it's only at that moment that Tolkien himself starts asking that question, of course. But um, 
But again, it was clearly a question that uh, Tolkien's answer had been changing to. Uh, oh yeah, like even in the, the Hobbit, the there are so many like you know, what are the extent of his powers? What is he capable of doing? He's just yeah. this Odin, Vindemoinen kind of traveling right. old fella guy, you know, just right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it's uh, yeah. All of that he was really working out. So with Gandalf, in, I mean, he does need a history, but his history is simpler, in a sense, yes. than Galadriel's history. Um, simpler because it doesn't have to impact all of the rest of society, right? Like he's not a he's not a lord. He's not uh, ruling anything. He doesn't have to be fit into the like political history of Middle Earth, right? He's no, just he's been a, a wanderer. So, how, how did he get it? Where did he come from? And how did he get to Middle Earth? And what was his job? Those things you need to figure out, right? But um, the answer is Gandalf, Gandalf, and Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, with with Galadriel, of course, the main challenge was figuring out how does she fit into the stories, and of course, in in in, in especially not only fitting into the stories of Middle Earth, but how does she fit into the story, the ancient stories, right? Mm-hmm. She has to have been around. Uh, for a long time, right? So, like, whose kid is she? And how was she connected with those other stories? Oh, immortals are so difficult to just think of. It's just so beyond human comprehension. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very very tricky. Definitely very tricky. Okay. All right, so two weeks is a long time. Uh, Where were we? We had gotten as far as, like, the marketplace... Isn't that where yes, we were? we were looking at. Yeah, we were. We hadn't got to the marketplace yet. We got distracted. Okay. Yes. As happens. As happens. Sometimes. Okay. We were distracted by doors of no function. Right. Right. Yes, Luke is recalling uh, when uh, uh, Gandalf says in the Hobbit, "I am Gandalf, and Gandalf means me." Yeah, that's pretty much the answer, right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't get much else. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that we passed the spire of meeting and I think we were heading towards the mercantile. Right. And we had come over here and we were looking at this gazebo. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the purpose of these towers is you cannot get to. Right. Yes. The towers with the lights. Right. Right. Which led us up to here into the market. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, we're on uh, Arkenstone tonight. Yes, Arkenstone tonight. That's where we are. Okay. So, this is the market. Who is the market for? Who's meant to buy things at market? Well, the traveler's coming through, definitely. Well, except the only travelers coming through that we've seen who seem to have any interest in mercantile exchange are the dwarves who are in a completely the other side of the the valley, right? And Uh who don't come up here. Now, you could say it's because they're selling 
not buying, right? And if they were buying, presumably they would come here. But um, well, look at the sort of things they're selling. They're selling armor and they're selling weapons. Yeah, yeah. So wonder, if you're a dwarf traveling back and forth with beautiful, you know, textiles or toys or things from the Long Lake or something like that, then, yeah. you know, that's something you might not have as much or yeah. have worn through <laughs> on your journeys. Right, right. See, Scudo, but this is exactly what I find interesting about the depiction of Rivendell. Scudo is saying we're bumping up against the distinction between a realistic depiction of the world Tolkien created and a game, game adaptation of that world. I agree in one sense yes. in that I know that there are certainly there are uh, sort of internal pressures right from the fact that it's a game environment um, but that don't necessarily have anything to do with an adaptation of Tolkien uh-huh. but I deny that that explains the marketplace entirely like yes it's true that we have to have elves who sell things right uh-huh. because like you know How may I be we're player sense? characters and we might need light armor right so I, I i might need to purchase light armor from a person so there needs to be a person who's selling light armor absolutely agreed right uh-huh. that doesn't necessarily yeah, no mean that. that there has to be a big old marketplace though um especially since we have examples of some of these things squeezed in pretty randomly in other places in rivendell where we don't you know so the like i'm thinking of the vault keeper um on the ground floor of the last homely house just hanging out in the atrium right um that's that or is is is, is that is there a vault? There is a vault keeper there, isn't there? Am I remembering yeah. that correctly? In the in which one again? In the last oh, yeah, the house entrance. on the ground floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, vault yeah, keeper, that's what I just in the entrance there. Yeah. So, I mean, they, so why is he there, not here? <laughs> that's well, a question. right. But and why are these here and not there? Is really what I was kind of getting at, right? Like we don't Including, need all uh, these buildings. Yeah. Um. um all, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could they've made the choice to include a marketplace and I would add not only have they made the choice to have the marketplace think back to the skirmish camp now I know skirmish camps are a thing and all of the skirmish <laughs> yeah. camps look alike so I'm not I'm not trying to say that the skirmish camp could be the model but in a sense it kind of could right that is mm-hmm. if they wanted to make they could make the choice to say, all right, like, a marketplace is a necessary evil because we need a bunch of people selling bunches of different things, right? So uh-huh. let's, ha- since we have to have a place where a bunch of elves are selling things, it might as well be a marketplace. But it doesn't have to be. And it certainly doesn't have to look like this. Look at this thing. They could have made it look like the dwarf auction hall and made them all dwarfs who were just passing through. Exactly. They could have, they are. they have dwarf merchants, Right, they could have made us go to the dwarves to buy things, right, and yep. and have the elves not sully their hands with, uh, uh, you know, with uh, mercantile practices, right? Well, they, they didn't. One thing I choice. am noticing here: um, all the vendors are military. Right, they're all wearing armor, right? Yeah, well, they're all wearing armor and the military crest of the yeah, area. Yeah, the, the the crest, the ones that we saw 
by Which the Which makes British, you think, right? like, this is less of a market than it is, like, an armory. <laughs> right. They're just, you know, like, this would normally be free to all Rivendell, you know, armor, you know, army citizens or something like that. Or, that is interesting. But, uh, to think of this as less the, um, less the armory than... Uh, yeah. Or less the 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 marketplace than the armory, um, like uh-huh. it has kind of become the marketplace, or like to us it is the marketplace. But that's why they have this thing. So again, like the in their adaptation here, the game designers have made the choice as as they have chosen to articulate Elvish culture through the building of Rivendell, which is what we've been examining for the last several sessions. They made the choice not only to have a marketplace. Uh, among the elves, but to make it very grand. I mean, this is bigger than and any completely inaccessible. We can't go inside, and we can't go inside. Yeah, there's no doors in. Um, that tower is taller and more elaborate than any other tower we've seen. Um, that those spires down next to it too, right? That's Really, um, different. It, it really does make me feel like the the armor sellers are a last minute addition. Like you know, these Over are the guys the who set up camp outside the market. Right. No, no. Notice how none of them are actually inside the oh, right. you know what you would call right. the marketplace. They're just sort of camped outside. You know, on various dais and steps and underhangings and stuff like that. Right. Like this is a new concession that is made due to all the. Um, Weapon-minded people right, currently wait, wait. have <laughs> passing All through. of a sudden, Rivendell is just overrun with folks who need like weapons and armor, right? So they yes. and who are who are so, coming to them with uh, you know uh-huh. boar boar tusks and uh, uh, lynx pelts uh, and things uh, like that to be made into and armor cons- and weapons. Consider how many of us get personal errands from Elrond in the first place. Right? How, you know, maybe this is just uh, you know. Well, let's you know. They're under orders from the master. Let's help them out here. Right, right. Yes, exactly. So this is them coming and setting up a, a sort of a spontaneous shop. Uh, as you mm-hmm. say, like these um, these banners, right, that they're operating. I mean, it's not like these are permanent banners. No, right? these are temporary banners. I've been on the inside. There's there's signs for stores that have been there for centuries that have been right. carved into the stone. Right, right. Exactly. Well, or- this is just... Wooden tables and shelves and mannequins. Yes, yes, yes. That they've kind of trundled out onto the sidewalk here uh, to, in yeah. order to get uh, to do to offer to those to us who are not allowed to go indoors. Yeah, yeah, maybe we're not privileged enough to go in. I get the feeling like you know, if we you know could magically see in, it would look a, something a little more like a grander version of Lalia's market. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, especially when you think, and here's the other thing, right, about the whole concept of marketplace. We know there are a lot of high elves in Rivendell, uh-huh. um, which means, to say the same thing another way, there are a lot of Noldor who live in <laughs> Rivendell, right, as we have already kind of been discussing. Uh-huh. That is, there's a lot of people who really love making things. We know this to be not just an Noldor trait, though they're yeah, well, look especially at the building. known for it. Exactly. Um, so I wonder what the 
elvish concept of marketplace was could they have and thinking and this is now where i'm coming back to the grandiosity of the buildings here right oh like a like a hoity-toity version of a craft show swap meet kind of thing (laughs) yeah that is kind of what i was thinking i think uh exactly yeah um the big noldoran swap meet uh, uh, Vanderbilt swap meet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just more or less exactly what I was thinking. Um, that this would be the place where the elvish craftsmen display the things that they've made, right? Which would be a really big deal, which would explain why this is like more cathedral than shop. Uh-huh. And also how we're kind of not invited in. It's definitely one of those, what are you going to bring to the table? How we're kind of not invited in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I made a popsicle stick man. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has googly eyes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, that seems to me to work. Now keep in mind, uh, like, uh, oft repeated disclaimer when I, you know, when we say these things, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm sure this is what the developers were thinking when they made this. I am trying to, I am in the delightful position of not having to try to guess exactly what they were thinking, but rather draw conclusions about the adaptation that they have made. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some decisions here, like to make a building we couldn't go into. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and I think the consequences of those decisions that we've been considering are that make a lot of sense. Well, now let's move on to the related area, which is the crafting center around the corner. Uh-huh. Okay. So we come over here. Oh, these guys are plain clothes. We've got another bridge. But then we come around through down by the river in through the the gap in the rocks. Down by the old mill stream. And in here we get... Yeah. The Forges of Rivendell. So we have a the building. The Forges. Relatively plain building. Plain compared, certainly, Hang to, in the, there. to the... Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm still... I, uh, I think jet lag. a little bit of jet lag still dealing with here. Uh, <laughs> midnight feels later to me than it usually feels because I'm still coming off of Europe time. But anyway, um, the house looks, well, not totally plain, but less ornate. Is it less ornate than the... I don't know if it's less ornate. It does remind me of the ones that you get in the homesteads yes. and Falafel. Yes. Yes. All right. And then, of course, over here, we have this. These are the forges. Uh-huh. Um, Hemildir, the main smith here, who's going to prove of immense important the quest lines. Right. Ooh, he's making a shield. See, once again, we're just more weaponry. Yes. W-E-A-P-O-N-R-Y weaponry. This beautiful oh. sword. This is... Is this... A, no, it's not a... What is that? Is it no, it's staff? not a sword because it's... Halberd? Yeah, I think it is a polearm. Yeah, it's some kind of polearm. 
Decorative or functional or both, maybe. Knowing the Noldren both. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's to choose between the two of them? Well, um, that'd be hard to get blood out of. You need, like, a Q-tip. Let's see. There's a beautiful Elbereth overall. Yeah, I'm stuck. All right. She's got another similar, not exactly the same pole arm over here, and she's whittling a pole. Okay. All right. Um, the fact that another shrine of Elbereth looks over this. Uh-huh. Is there. Do we it's have another. It's definitely a jeweler's paradise then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do I remember these where? Um, they. I. I'm pretty sure they were at, or doing in very special like shrines. That didn't seem to have any other purpose. Uh, there was one. I think there was a forge similar to this in uh, Kalandan. Right. But I don't know if it was on the scale. It was definitely much smaller. Yeah, I mean the Elbereth shrine we've seen at this scale in mm-hmm. the um, you know in the atrium. Of the last homely house. Mm-hmm. You know, in that, that first... Well, that was arm. even bigger. Those are towering, but yes. That for polearm. I'm reading polearms here on the uh, uh, on the Twitch chat. Um, in, yep. the, in that first uh, uh, courtyard. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting that they have a similar... So, when we were looking at that other very stri- striking statue or shrine or icon uh, of Elbereth, we were noticing, of course, the purple flames that are set out like votary flames at the feet of Elbereth uh, in that shrine, if shrine is quite the right word, uh, within Rivendell. Here, Uh the forge itself, the forge fires are at her feet like, Uh you know, votary flames uh, at the feet of Varda. And that's kind of interesting, actually. Um, it suggests that their, their, their craftsmanship itself, and it's really, the, you know, this is the Forges of Rivendell, uh, is what I, and I call it the crafting area, but that's not exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only, it only talks about It's only about smithing forges. and work bunches. Yeah, exactly. Which means that the heart of this whole area um, is the fire, right? The fire it's, that is there at the at Elbereth's feet. It's almost like the act of creating beautiful things is in it of itself a holy act mm-hmm. to be blessed. Exactly. It, you know, when you look at it from here, you could be forgiven for thinking that this was a shrine or a church or something like that. Right. Um, and if so, the forge is in the place where the altar would be. Uh Um, it is like, and I don't want to get too detailed with that parallel, but, um, you know, there is a sense in which here the forge is like the altar, um, you know, at the, the that central point in the nave and where the 
the you know in a Christian church, right, where the where the the the, the sacrificial gifts are laid upon the altar, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, in sort of the Christian version of that. Here we have the censor smoke everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Here we have the um, the you know the 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 steel, the metal of the you know the the materials that they're using to forge are laid within the forge um a different kind of chiming exactly a a different kind of sacrifice right a different kind of concept here um it's a sacrifice of self and of heart and time spent yeah which is which is interesting now trifle i agree we do need to pay attention to the forges of Regian uh when we get there and compare in fact i think we might do a little detour there sooner rather than later uh, to uh-huh. uh, uh, to do some comparison because uh, that really sounds like quite a good idea. Um, then yeah, it will also weigh the question if there's a forge without it, is it an older forge? Right, right. Yeah, I would be interested to see uh, how similar or different the forges uh, uh, in a Regian are. Uh, from and and if you if you played through the the. Um, the, the, the task, uh, the momentous decision that leads to the forging of Narsil and see the animation in this area, it is a almost a reverent and holy ceremony as yes. they're reforging the sword. Yes. It's yeah. Like, what a better setting for that. Yeah, exactly. I agree. That's a really uh, that's a really important point. The whole ceremonial of the forging of and of uh, of Anduro, it's um, it's very reverent. You're right. Um, and it gives a sense, a kind of sanctity, sacredness uh, to Endoral itself. Yeah. Anyway. And then um, it being blessed by Barda, you know, his mission yes. being blessed. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that seems, that seems like an important thing. And that is an interesting difference between what we see here uh, in the forges and what we were looking at in the marketplace, right? Um, uh-huh. Now, those are different, obviously, right? There's a difference yes. between the place where the forging and the crafting is happening and the place where the goods are displayed, right? The, the, in one sense or another, the marketplace is a showcase, whereas this is where the magic happens, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. I think uh, I think it's good. I'm happy with our marketplace conclusions and looking at the forge here. Um, sorry. Now I'm looking at the vertical, looking <laughs> at the shape of things here. Anyway, it's a sorry. beautiful set. Beautiful, beautiful, it is a beautiful set. set. And the water. You know, that it's yeah. set above the, um, you know, this very peaceful little arm of the river. Let's see, where are we? Oh, swimming in the peaceful water. Yeah. It's, Ruining our view. This is <laughs> oh, also, they're going over the files. <laughs> this is also the s- source mm. of, at least of this branch. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Flows into this. No waterfalls are coming down from the top. And if you look at the map, this looks like 
this is the beginning of that uh-huh. water, unlike the other places where we see it flowing out or flowing in. It's a new beginning. Yeah. So this pool next to the forge is a spring, which is also lovely, right? So we've got memories of, of uh, Olmo here, too, perhaps you could say. Um, <laughs> I like that. I like yeah. That. The only thing we don't have is Owly, yes, who would well, seem to belong here. Owly, right. Unless you say the forge itself, right? Um, the f- he's in the forge itself. <laughs> right, right, exactly. At least recalled by it. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I think I'm going to have to uh, uh, call the field trip. Uh, I'm getting very sleepy. My jet lag <laughs> right. self. I'll have to. Uh, I should. I should be in. Uh, I should be better next week. But, but no, this is good. I think that we've and we've covered a lot. Most of Rivendell now. Yeah. Not quite all yet. We still have a little bit left, but so, some we've corners. Seen quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we still haven't gone up to Arwen yet, so we'll do that soon. Mm-hmm. And but. the and the rep, the repal might be an option if we if you have a if you have a tune that has reputation. Yes, uh, exactly. I was. I would love to go in there. We should go in there, one mm-hmm. way or another. But yeah, I don't think I. I know. I, I know Narnian doesn't have it. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That'd be a Landerval one. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. All right. Okay. So thanks, everybody. Yeah. Quick reminder, as Sharon is posting, don't forget to check out Mootcast, uh, our new way to uh, uh, attend MythMoot Live if you can't make it. Um, uh, SignumUniversity.org slash MythMoot slash Mootcast. Definitely check that out. So... Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.